Hop over to Genesis chapter 18 and we'll begin. A little bit of background. Uh, So far, God has chosen this guy named Abram to be his partner in redeeming all of mankind. And not just mankind, but all of creation. And as God gives Abraham different chances, we get to see different parts of Abraham's character. He's he's actually got a lot of strengths as a character, and so does his wife, Sarai. And God makes a covenant with them. We talked about that before. He makes his covenant, and he has them walk the blood path. uh, Or actually, rather, God himself walks the blood path, while Abram doesn't. Then God uh, gives the gift of the covenant, the sign of circumcision, and uh, I had this picture here of, of even when God, as Abraham, then Abram struggles with this idea of really believing and trusting in God, like many of us do as well. God brings him outside and says, take a look up at the stars. Look at this. Your descendants will number more than these stars in the sky. And we begin to see God and Abra, Abram and now Abraham, their relationship uh, weld together more and more and more. And the next two chapters... Uh, are the interesting and unique two chapters in the book of Genesis in that no 24-hour period in Abraham's life is given more attention than this one. And so the next two chapters will be two parts, part one today, part two next time. Um, And we will be able to uh, look at this 24-hour period and why is it so important to the author of Genesis? Why is it so important to the Holy Spirit that we understand what happens here in these two chapters? Um, If you missed last week, I'm sorry, instead of... uh, Clicking the voice memo button on my phone, I clicked my stopwatch. So um, it's lost to eternity. Um, but just do your own sermon for that one. Come up with your own sermon. Fill in the blank. Uh, sort of be your own preacher week. And then uh, we'll, you can hop in with us as we continue uh, this whole thread of narrative here in Genesis. Chapter 18. Begin with an unexpected party. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. While he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham was just uh, circumcised, so he's taken a much-needed break. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Now her name was just changed, right? So she's no longer Sarai, but Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran, he's running everywhere. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant, to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and he set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now, this is incredible. Three seahs of flour is an incredible amount. It's something like 60 pounds, it'll make 60 pounds uh, of bread. I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount. And to be able to slaughter that animal, the calf, this is a royal banquet. Um, this is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, hospitality that's un- unusual um, to us, uh, especially in the West. Hospitality for us more and more, you know, if people... Swing by your house without texting you first. It's like offensive, right? You know, it's like, what are they doing here? What do they want? Why would they come right now? And um, don't come inside. Uh, don't look at me. Um, 
And then we look at them from the window and like anybody popping, like hospitality is something that's growing more and more unusual. But these people, Abram doesn't know, Abraham doesn't know who these people are, these three men. But he runs to them and he gives them this great hospitality. Um, it cooks all this food, has his wife help out a ton. And then they ask an interesting question. These men ask, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. First of all, how would you know her name's changed? Mystery men. (laughs) They're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yeah. Yeah, you did. Um, An interesting story because three men, right? Abraham's dozing off. He's recovering. Sees these three men, runs to them, has a chance to give some hospitality, gives that hospitality, prepares this incredible meal. And then it gets really weird really quick because these men who are eating. So how's your wife, Sarah? And he's and he's uh, Sarah. How do you know that? And then they say she's going to have a kid. And Sarah's listening. She's in the tent. They can't see her, but they know her name's changed. And they're sort of talking to her when she's not even really, really there. She's, but she's listening, right? And I think what's incredible about this passage is the sudden change away from the re, for us realizing these are not ordinary men. And even the text helps us out by saying, the Lord said. At some point you go, okay, this is not just Joe Schmo. This is somebody who knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And so it's getting, and so the, our interest is, is peaking. And our tension is, ah, what's going on here? What's happening? And so as, uh, as she laughs, by the way, to herself, it's not even out loud. Remember when Abraham found out that, he was gonna, that his wife was going to have a kid? He like rolled on the floor laughing um, out loud. But Sarah, she, Sarah keeps a tight lid on it. Sarah's like, she laughs to herself. Not even to herself. She laughs to herself out of sight of the men with her back to, or their back to her. But they know. And so we're realizing this is not just a guy. This is God. And isn't it important that God doesn't care about what happens on the outside, but he actually does care about Sarah's heart. And she didn't laugh on the outside, but she laughed on the inside. Uh, A commentator uh, noted about this very passage that Sarah's response is not one of pride, but one of hopelessness. Uh, One of one of one of a lack. Are you kidding me at my age? She's hopeless. She's hurt. She's worn out. She's she's faithless. But God still gives her a gentle rebuke because it's important for her, to, for her to see that the inside matters. For God does not look at the outside appearance, but the heart. And it's a little reminder to us uh, that our hearts do, in fact, matter. And as we study out quiet times as a church in our midweeks, it reminds us, just because we can keep a tight lid on our emotions and look good to everybody else, God goes, and we, we can say, no, I didn't laugh. God goes, well, yeah, you did. Or I wasn't faithless. He goes, yeah, you were. But God looks at our heart and how important it is for us to remember it's not just about how we act around each other, but act, our hearts do matter. And God's gentle, too, right? He's not like, Sarah, come on out. Oh, gosh, you know, he doesn't do that. He's, he just kind of says, yeah, you did. And I love that. And by the way, uh, I did not laugh in Hebrew as an anagram 
of Isaac. The anagram is when the letters are rearranged to then form the word Isaac. So she basically names her son there. Again, um, as she says, I didn't laugh. Yeah, yeah you did, Isaac. You actually did. Um, by the way, his name will be Isaac. So at this moment, it's an unexpected party. And then something interesting is going to happen in verse 16. He said, interesting, it's already interesting. Well, it's going to get more interesting. Okay, verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. An incredible moment here. We realize these men are not just men, that it seems to be Yahweh and the, and the heavenly host. It's God and perhaps a couple angels. And they're there and God looks down and you realize this is not just about an unexpected party. It's not just about a drop in, that God's got something he's actually looking to do. And he walks over to Sodom and he looks down and he says, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And whenever you tell somebody, hey, I want to tell you a secret, but I just don't really want to. You're probably going to tell them that secret. Um, like it, God is bringing Abraham in to his thought process. And when people bring you into your thought process, it's kind of a weird, especially if it's a parent. Like I'm thinking, I thought you just made it, called the shots. What do you mean? But if someone pulls you in, an authority figure pulls you in to their decision making. It's, it's a moment. It's an interesting moment of vulnerability and even humility, but a moment of partnership. And so God invites Abraham in. I'm, Abraham, I'm about, to, I'm about to do something to Sodom and Gomorrah. And interesting why he does it. Now, a lot of us know about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know about what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and what ensues next is God's brought Abraham in. And Abraham's going to have this, one of the most unique prayers. It's actually a prayer here. One of the most unique prayers in the entire Old Testament. And so he says, if not, I will know. Verse 22. Um, yeah, that's, that's where we are. Verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from me or sorry, far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous as the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50? Five less than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for the sake of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke up to him. What if only 40 are found there? Uh, he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. But let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now I, that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me just speak once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. We began with an unexpected party. Now we have approaching the bench. It's interesting, as Abraham stands with the Lord, God's brought him into his thought process. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually destroy these two cities. Now, God's wrath is a very interesting thing, and it's something that in our society today bothers a lot of people, especially a lot of modern people. Uh, it doesn't seem fair that God, God should be, I love the God of the New Testament, people say. I love the God of love, but I can't believe in a God of wrath. But that's, that's having your cake and eating it too in a lot of ways. It doesn't make any sense. You can't have a God of love if he doesn't see right or wrong. And in fact, God in the first place, why is God even coming down? Did you notice what he says? I've heard the outcry of the oppressed. So God's coming down in the first place because he hears the outcry of the oppressed. God is a God of mercy. That's why he shows up in the first place. But if God's going to be a God of love, there has to be justice. There has to be right and wrong. In a pluralistic society where everything is okay, it gets really difficult to be able to be someone who has justice. Because when everyone disagrees on what that justice is, there's no justice. Uh, We can say everyone's right, but if I believe murder is okay, I I can't be right. You'd say, no, I'm wrong. You're wrong, Drew. No, everyone's right. Obviously, there are lines, and our society is struggling to grasp that. The lines provided by the Bible for very long are slowly being ebbing away. But God's a God of love. That's why he shows up in the first place. Not only is he a God of mercy and love, but he actually invites Abraham in to do something very interesting, essentially haggle at a Middle Eastern bazaar here, you know, for a pomegranate, essentially what it seems like. And so they're 50, what about 20, 25, five, five. And so it's a weird kind of interaction. But notice what's going on here. One of the things that, that Abraham does is he approaches God. This is the first example in the Bible of uh, uh, basically a prayer. A first example of, of, of a person approaching God to intercede for other people. Notice it says Abraham is standing next to God. And then it says he approaches him. So what does that mean? You like, just like... You know, like he didn't take a step toward him. It means he approached him with a, with, a, with a bargain, with a plea, with a request. That's prayer. We approach God with a request. It's like the Hebrew, the technical, it's a technical word in Hebrew that basically means to approach the bench as you would in like a jury or in a courtroom. You know, may I approach the bench? You know, you may. I have a request of some kind. And so there they begin, they begin going back and forth. And Abraham begins from something that he knows to be true, or at least he believes to be true. You're a God of justice, right? Like you're you're not going to treat evil people and good people the same, right? You're a God of justice. He begins on that premise. And God goes, you know, pretty much, yeah. So he says, how about 50? So it was pretty much believed that most towns on average had about 100 people. Okay, not very big towns. But he starts, so Abraham starts with a half and half. How about, let's say half the town is evil. What will you do then? And God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy it in, in their case. And so... Abraham is doing something amazing. He's doing a, a, some people call it a theological discovery. He's trying to figure out what kind of God this is. What kind of God are you? What kind of God would do this? Now, he's struggling a little bit, obviously. He speaks up. He kinda, he's kind of bold, right? He's like, far be it from you, God. You know, it's got that, that raw prayer in him. And prayer is something that needs to be raw and needs to be real. We've talked about it before. If you read the Psalms, they're called imprecatory psalms, but psalms where you basically pray something sinful or something bad because you need to get it out to God so that you won't do it to other people. God can handle it. And so sometimes we don't, when we're not, we don't have a great prayer life, then we hurt everyone around us with our sin because we're not putting that sin on God. We can put our anger, our insecurity, our, are you kidding God? Far be it from you, God. Put that on God. He'll take it. He'll go, okay, for the sake of, you know, God's, God's God. He's going he's gonna to take it. 
But our spouse is not meant to be Jesus. Our kids are not Jesus. And so when we overflow of our emotions, our anger, our impatience, go on to our kids or our spouse or our coworkers or our friends or ourselves, we see catastrophic damage. But prayer is an amazing thing. And we see Abraham here pray and he requests and he gets bolder and bolder and bolder, right? He's doing the five and then a couple, a couple of times, 10 jumps to see, will God really save? And now what's the real issue here? The real issue is that Abraham is, is trying to discover one basic premise about God. That premise being, can the righteousness of a few save the wickedness of many? And where's the line? Now, in order to believe that, you've got to believe the opposite, which is something that most people do believe, which is that the sin of, of the few affects the righteous many. Now, we believe that. A lot of us believe that. Now, people like to say, well, no, especially in our individualized culture, we like to believe, no, 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 I, my, I only have to pay for my sin, my responsibility. What my dad does, what my family does, what my people do is not my responsibility. It's just me. It's just true. I, I, didn't, I didn't do any of that stuff. But... Usually people doing that are trying to evade some kind of responsibility. I mean, a lot of us know about something called you know, white privilege, which is the idea that white people actually are living on the privilege of what their people have done in, in subsequent or past generations. We are living, we're standing on the shoulders of those actions. And so like many people would say, yeah, that makes sense. Like those are your people. Your people did something. You are implicit in that action. It's a very common, especially in a communal society, very commonly accepted. So Abraham's acting from this. Now, if you read the Bible, there's a couple situations of that. Remember, there's a guy in um, Joshua named Achan, and he sins. And so that sin actually causes the death of his whole, his, all of his people. Now, we read that and we go, that's not fair. But most people would read that. Most in Middle Eastern cultures, traditional cultures read that and go, that makes sense. Those are his people. And we all know that. We don't like to accept it, but your sin does have an impact on those around you. And it actually does transition to now its consequences. But it does, have, it does have effect. It doesn't have to affect on those around you in a good way. It could have effect in a negative way. Sin does spread. Sin spreads. Now, Abraham's trying to figure out if righteousness spreads. Okay, I understand that sin spreads. I understand that someone who makes a sinful choice, and that, that's obvious to most of us. Think about the sin in your life, the nasty stuff. It's affected people around you. It's affected your people, your family. It's affected, it's ruined marriages. It's ruined friendships. It's ruined, in a lot of ways, yourself, addictions, these things. This is an obvious thing. So Abraham knows this, but he goes, hold on, hold on. So, you're, so I know that sin uh, from a few people can affect the, uh, the many, right? But what about, especially people you're in solidarity with, but what about if you're in solidarity with people, what if you do good? Can that good spread to others? Can that good be disseminated to others? And he's trying to figure out how many, okay, 50, right? Okay, 40, 30, 20, 10. And he's getting lower and lower and lower. And what a merciful God this is, by the way. To be able to say, yes, even for 10, I will spare the city. What does that tell you about God? It tells you that God, he wants to see people change. He wants to see repentance. He doesn't want to kill anyone. God doesn't want to bring about any kind of death. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to suffer pain. Why in the world would God come down to have lunch with Abraham, then invite him into a conversation, all-knowing God, all-powerful God? He knew Sarah's name changed. He knew she's going to have a kid. Also, why did God come down? Why didn't he just like fly or hover or just like know everything? Like, I'm all knowing. I know, boom, if I talk to Abraham, I know what will happen. That's not what happens. But God comes down because he wants to be on our level. He walks up as a person. He talks to Abraham as a person. He comes in a way that we can understand. This is a God who wants 
Not only for mercy to happen, for love to happen, for justice, God wants you to be involved. God wants us to intercede. God wants us to intercede on, on behalf of others. And I like to imagine him even maybe, maybe getting a little annoyed by Abraham, but also just being proud of him, of this heart that Abraham has to intercede for people. Another point about this, you're probably going, well, Abraham's probably interceding for these people because they're like, you know, uh, related to him or something. But this is the only instance of a prophet in the Bible, of a person in the Bible praying for his enemies, the salvation of his enemies. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember last time, Abra- remember when Abraham left? Remember the graphic I had and Abraham had to go save Lot and beat the kings and he brought back uh, all, the, all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember how the king of Sodom thanked him? He didn't. He basically said, here's half, here's half, bye, he left. Sodom and Gomorrah has this coming. They're not Abraham's friends, but he's praying. He's interceding for his enemies. This is amazing. And he's doing it, he's basically like haggling with God to try to save his enemies. Now, this is the first example we talked about of really a priest. A priest is someone in the Bible. A priest is a bridge maker. Now, a priest basically means, uh, in Latin, it's pontifex, which means a bridge maker. A priest is somebody who grants access, who, who get, grants access to God. So a bridge maker is literally what it is. And so Abraham basically realizes, here's Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to suffer immense devastation. They're going to die. They're going to... They're going to suffer wrath for their sin. Here's God. Abraham steps in between them. And he says, God, will you, will you give them a chance? Will you, will you help? Will you bail? Is there any chance for them? He's trying to plead for these people. And it's obvious that God not only wants to save Sodom and Gomorrah, he wants Abraham to want to save God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. God wants, he wants us to have the same heart as him. Why in the world do you pray? Why? Why do you pray? What, what's your purpose? Did you pray this morning and why'd you do it? Have you prayed recently and why'd you do it? God knows everything. Why does he go down to Abraham to pull him into this thought process? And I, I, I can't help but believe that God wants, he wants Abraham to be able to see his heart, but he also wants to be able to do this with Abraham. God wants the partnership with Abraham. God chose to work through a family because he wants to redeem this world with us. God wants to pull us into, when we pray, we're entering into that conversation with God to help save the lost, the marginalized, the rejected. This is a heart that we learn in prayer. Bridge makers are people who provide bridges for the lost. I had many bridge makers in my life. You know, every time my mom and dad would pray with me on the way to school, they were bridge makers. They weren't only just helping me pray, they were teaching me what intercession looks like. And I learned what a, I, I, when uh, John Nelson asked me to study the Bible and I studied the Bible as a young man at the age of 12, 13, then I stopped. He was a bridge maker, even though I, I stopped. Then I studied the Bible again with James Williams, who was a bridge maker for me. He was showing me God's heart. He was exhibiting, this is how God sees people. This is how God responds to people. Then I stopped studying the Bible again to, in order to become a Christian. Then finally, Nick Anderson asked me to study the Bible. I had, and I got baptized, and there were three different bridge makers, three different guys who were providing opportunity for me to see God's heart, to know God's heart, to, to, that our job here on earth is not simply to get baptized. I'm going to heaven one day, so I can just try not to sin for a while. That's not what we're doing. That is a corruption of what Christianity is and always was supposed to be. It is us entering into a partnership, into a team to help go save the world. 
We have a purpose. Your job is not about making money. Your job is about helping and saving those people in that workspace. School is not about you getting a great grade. It's about you able to help and save the lost people in that workplace. Yes, even your professor who apparently has it all figured out, he or she does not. We have a role. We have a job. Abraham is pulled into this incredible special role as a bridge maker to be able. God is God's perfect. We are sinful. We can't approach God on his terms. We need someone to grant us access. We need someone to grant us access and caretakers, because I don't want to I don't want to just cast aside the hospitality part of this chapter either. Half this chapter is dedicated to us knowing how hospitable Abraham and Sarah were. Now, notice the three men were not planning on stop me. They look like they're going to keep walking. And then Abraham has to beg them to stay. Imagine if they weren't hospitable. And they were just like, yeah, go ahead and keep going. You know, I don't. It's a weird thing to think about, but maybe there's no, maybe none of this happens. But they, they bring in, they bring in uh, God. You know, as the New Testament says, some have, in their hospitality, have even entertained angels. He- Hebrews says that. It's a reference to this. Hospitality is our way, in a lot of ways, to reach the world. It's something we can feel like we don't have time for, we don't have the ability for, but hospitality changes lives. Many of us were reached out to in some form of hospitality. We came to the truth in some form of hospitality. It doesn't just mean you have someone over it. I think we can realize what hospitality looks like in our life stage. But this beautiful example of Sarah and Abraham being hospitable, being caretakers, but also being, being bridge makers. But guess what? If we just sort of left the sermon there, it would, it would fall flat. Because we, we need to go be bridge makers. We need to go be this for people. But we'll never be able to be perfect in it. And it's important to remember that Abraham, even in all his intercession here, that he is not the great inter- uh, intercessor. He is not the great mediator. We all had no access to God. We all, with our actions, des- deserve to be pierced for our iniquities, to be crushed for our transgressions. We all deserve that. But Jesus came primarily for one thing. And notice how Jesus comes in the, almost the same way. He comes down in a way we can understand as a person. And he brings us into his thought process. He teaches us what it's like to be godly. It's to help the poor. It's to make sure that we don't just follow the rules, that we get to the heart. It's to actually love each other. It's not about numbers. It's about connection. Jesus only had a few people who followed him, but they were so close. Jesus brought, he wants to bring us in to say, this is what godliness is. But even when you do all those things, you still need somebody to go to bat for you. Notice when in Luke, or sorry, 1 Peter, this is about God's heart. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, God wants everyone to come to repentance. And Jesus teaches us that heart. And in Luke 20, when, when Jesus says this to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, so that your faith may not fail. What does Jesus do? He prays for us. In John, he prays for us. He goes, they're going to come after you, Simon. They're going to come after all of you, in fact, but I've prayed for you. I've gone to bat for you. I've, I've interceded for you. And Jesus is the great interceder. He's he, the intercessor, rather. He's the one who stands up to go, God, you know what? Give him another chance. There's a great parable in Luke, uh, Luke 13. It says this, this fig tree in the vineyard is not, not bearing fruit. 
And there's this random caretaker who comes in and says, give it one more year. Give it one more year. Let's fertilize it. Let's set it up. She'll get there. I know she's not responding to the Bible right now. I know that she's really sucked into the world. I know that she thinks that she can find happiness through boyfriends. But give her some time. She'll get there. I I know he's having a hard time right now with, with greed. I know that he's focused on his job. I know that he's cutting corners. I know that he is insecure about confessing. I know that he's so tense about, afraid of people pleasing. That he won't just let his guard down. But give him some time. Jesus is interceding for us. And the thing I want to close out with is the, the great question on all, or probably as we read the passage. Anyone who's read this passage has one last final question. Why did Abraham stop? <laughs> Ten, right? Ten. Gets down to just a few. Why not, why not get down to one? Yeah. There's a couple thoughts. One is he got the gist. And was like, I'm going to die if I keep asking questions. <laughs> um, so we're going to cut off at 10. But I think, I, think the, I think probably what he felt was, I'm interceding for these people. And as he's saying 20, 15, 10, as he's getting lower, he's thinking of actual people. And the only people he has left in Sodom is his nephew Lot. Those are the people he's banking on. Okay, so if he goes down to one, that's just Lot. That's his nephew. And he knows that Lot isn't enough. He knows that Lot can't be enough. His righteousness cannot extend to the other 99. And so he, he, he knows one can. And so he gets down to this great question. And it's left kind of open in the whole Old Testament of can one person cover the sins of many? Can one person be so righteous? Can one person be so perfect that they cover the, the sins of many? And we know, of course, in the New Testament, the answer is yes, that Jesus comes to be that one. That Jesus and that when we get baptized, because just because just because you're uh, in mankind doesn't mean that Christ is covered over your sins. Rain falls on all soil, but only certain soil bears fruit. So those who have responded to Jesus's call, who get baptized, who repent, who want to live for him, you are now in solidarity with Jesus. We talked about your people, right? Talked about how you can be have a people of your race or a people of your class or the people of your family. When you get baptized, you are now in solidarity with Christ, which means he's part of your people, which means you can go. That's my dude. And by the way, I have failed, but he hasn't. I struggle with this quiet time series. I don't know what I'm doing. It's been six weeks in and I still don't know what this topic is. But you know what? Jesus had quiet times every day. So I'm going to keep trying. I don't know how to be sexually pure. It is so tough. It's a world where it's everywhere. But you know what? Jesus was pure. So I'm going to keep going for it. That's my guy. He's in my family. I can actually, his righteousness extends and covers me. And that's something that if if it causes us to feel like I'm not going to try, then we're not really getting it. But if it inspires us that, are you kidding? Jesus died for me. Let's go for it. There is no law against grace. The rest of our lives were shot out of a cannon to live every day for him. Abraham walked away thinking, I sure hope there's 10 there because one could never do it. We get to walk away knowing today that one did do it. That there is one who did do it. And it's just simply up to us. Do we want to enter into that walk with him or not? And in our lives, I want to give us a challenge as we close out. 
I know a lot of us in our lives can feel overwhelmed. We feel like, what can I really do? What can I really accomplish? We can feel like failures. You know, people keep asking me to study the Bible and I, I keep giving excuses. Or I can't do it. I'm too busy. I can't. We keep thinking I got to be in eight Bible studies with seekers. I got to baptize people. I got to I got to do the quiet time series. I got to pray. I got to be. This other brother wants me to help. I got to help that guy. This sister wants me. To, I got to help her. We get so stressed by all the things we got to do. I want to encourage you this week. One thing. Pray. Pray. Pray on the way home. Pray before bed. Pray on the way to school. Pray on the way to work intercede for people. Say, God, I know there's this woman at work and she's hurting, but God, give her some time. God, I know that my mom, I know my dad, I know my brother, I know my sister. God, I know my friend's marriage is collapsing, but please give them time. Join into that and approach the bench. Go there with God. Be a bridge maker and a caretaker. And if you're unsure of how to be a bridge maker in, I mean, with, outside of prayer, prayer is a great place to start. Be hospitable. Say, come over for dinner. Honey, three say as a flower. That's 60 pounds, son. Yeah, it's a lot. But um, we'll have extra. We'll have leftovers for the campus. We make 60 pounds of bread. We have a great, a great game plan here. So I want to encourage you as you leave today, we're going to sing a song that's called You're the One. We're going to remember the one that has done it for us, that he has covered the sins of many. And I want to encourage us before you get home in the car, with people or not, pray. Begin the week with being a bridge maker. Amen. To God be the glory.